Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic, found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Hari Kondabolu and I go back to the scene of his very first big break, showcasing for the 2007 U.S. Comedy Arts Festival in Aspen and HBO. How that all happened, and how he managed to take a year off afterward to earn his master's degree from the London School of Economics. Kondabolu since has enjoyed time writing and performing for late-night TV with Totally Biased, and just this summer launched a new podcast, Politically Reactive, with his former boss, W. Kamau Bell. Kondabolu also just released his second stand-up comedy album, Mainstream American Comic, is working on a documentary about Apu from The Simpsons, and has a deal to develop his own TV series for True TV. We talk about all of this and more, so let's get to it! All right, uh, thanks, thanks for inviting me into your, into your home here in Brooklyn. Oh, man, you're, you're very welcome. I'm sorry it's so messy. Um, I guess it's messy, but I don't know if it's comedian messy. Well, you know, the first time I met you, we shared a home. That's right. It, a it, messy condo in Aspen, <laughs> Colorado. That was nuts. That whole thing was, it was huge. Yeah, it, it was the, the, well, it was the last HBO comedy festival in right. Aspen. They did a couple more in Las Vegas, but it was the last. Last one that broke people in, the that last new faces. Big, yeah, the last and, big one know. in Aspen. Yeah. And you were part of it. It was a, that class was loaded. We've talked about this. That class, yes. that, the last class of Aspen, it was, me, Mulaney, Eric Andre, Kyle Kinane, Michelle Buteau, I'm missing so many people, like Lavelle Crawford, Mike DiStefano. TJ Miller. TJ, oh, TJ Miller, uh, my friend Lisa Delarios, um, Alexander our, McHale, who else? We're missing so, our people. roommate Shane Moss. Shane, how am I forgetting? Shane Moss, Dan Bulger. Yeah. You know, and some folks are, are like, you know, like Dan's in Boston, yeah. being Dan, <laughs> and being hilarious. Uh, but then you have all these people who are like broke out, like Mulaney and like TJ, like Mulaney, TJ, Eric Andre already, and Kanane is a pretty loaded. Yeah, if, if that was, it was just the four of them that were known. It would still be great. <laughs> it's it that was a hell of a year. Yeah, you were kind of under the radar compared to them. Yeah, I I didn't know where the radar was, man. Like I was in Seattle as uh, working as an immigrant rights organizer, and I did comedy at night. We had a good young scene. Oh five to oh seven was the peak, maybe oh eight too, but oh five to oh seven, I say was the peak of uh, that that mid aughts scene. Like it was a really cool young scene. Which was that the People's Republic? The of People's comedy? Republic of Comedy. Every like. Andy Haynes was mm-hmm. there, Emmett Montgomery, Scott Moran, just a lot of a lot of great for David Cope. Reggie had left right before Reggie Watts. Right. Uh, Rory Scovel was adopted by the scene because he would do stuff in D.C., but Seattle felt I think to him was like a spiritual home because he could really stretch out and do theater kind of things there. I remember first hearing about Rory when he did the Seattle competition. Oh so that yeah, probably was he loves Seattle. That was probably a couple of years into him his uh, regular stops in Seattle, but he's. He was he, in our scene. He was certainly like a legendary figure. But were you also going to grad school at the time? No, I was an immigrant rights organizer. Oh five to oh seven. Then I went to London. So when you met me, mm-hmm. I wait. So you went to grad school after? Uh, yeah, which was weird, right? Yeah, it wasn't the plan, Sean. I didn't plan to be a stand-up comic. 
It was a, it was a hobby. It was something. <laughs> it was something. Did I, you say that out loud? Oh, there? Yeah. I mean, I faked it as long as I could. <laughs> Tell people, the, oh, I'm just doing this as a hobby. I'm a hobbyist. Um, <laughs> and then you get asked, and you're like, none of, none of it made any sense. Like, well, I, I remember, I, I remember what happened. Um, went home from work sometime in 2006, so probably mm-hmm. think the summer or so, get an email from a fellow named J.P. Buck. The great J.P. Buck. Yes. Uh, Booker saying, for Aspen, now Booker for Conan. Yeah, and just real. In terms of all the bookers I met, I think he might be the best because he has this incredible memory. And also when he works with you on a set, like he really puts the work in. Yeah. This is not just a random, the, the notes are solid and he's fair and he really watches as many sets as he can. Um, but uh, but uh, J.P. emailed me because I had done Bumbershoot the local stage of Bumbershoot okay. that summer, and he had seen my name on the uh, the website, went to my webpage. This is pre-YouTube, really. So he saw some probably some AVI clips mm-hmm. or, 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 or MPEG-4s or whatever it was. So you were putting video on my three, online even before YouTube. I had three clips. That's all I had. Three clips that I had done at the Broadway Comedy Club, then known as the New York Improv. Okay. Um, so not Seattle, but here. In not Seattle. I, it's three clips I did right before I left New York. I had done comedy once after college. It was at this one show that Dean Obadala put together. Okay. I'd met Dean. Somebody asked me to do a set. It went really well, and I posted that, and that was enough for JP to be interested. Next thing I know, I'm sending demos on the sly because I didn't want any of the other comedians to know because it was weird. Like all of us were in this small scene and supporting each other, building a scene, and there's this one guy doing something bigger. Like that's weird. Yeah, it wasn't. A, I didn't want to disrupt anything, so uh, I ended up, um, you know, I ended up getting to a place where JP wanted me to go to San Francisco. I didn't have enough money for a flight at that time because I was I was never gonna write to organize. So my friends drove me all night from Seattle to San Francisco. How many friends or no, friends? my my roommates, best okay. friends. Like to this day, they're all my best friends, but. And uh, I've been to I never had been, I never been to San Francisco, and I bu- I felt like I bumped into a ton of comics I would be friends with later on that weekend like like Moshe, Sheng Wang, uh, Kevin Avery, uh, Kevin Kamia. It was just loaded with talent. Did you meet Kamau on that trip? No, not on that one. Okay. Weird. I think Weinbach I'd met right before mm-hmm. too. Alex Cole, Garcia. I mean, it was loaded. Ali Wong, Ali I knew from before, but like it was just mm-hmm. it was loaded that scene. And uh did okay at the um at the audition. Get asked to go to LA to uh, do a set that uh, Melrose Improv. Again, never been to LA before. Never auditioned for a thing before that San Francisco thing. Again, hobbyist, Sean. I was a hobbyist. So you hadn't even done the Seattle competition. Nah. The first year I moved to Seattle in oh five, I would, I auditioned and I fucking killed my set. Mm-hmm. And uh, I didn't get in, which I was heartbroken about it. But I went to the competition because I'm like, I learned something, mm-hmm. and I realized I was better than more than half of the people there. And and Ron <laughs> Reed told me later the only reason that I didn't get it because they thought I was too new. It's not mm-hmm. that I wasn't good enough. It was just like other people had paid their dues, and that's yeah. why I've never done the competition. <laughs> I love Ron, Ron and no, Carl. No, that happened you, to me. Yeah, it's it's like a stupid excuse. When I was in Seattle, I was good, and I and and there were people there that weren't good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, and it's hard to say that because these, these are colleagues, mm-hmm. but they weren't good. They, it was like, a, it was like people that should be open micing in New York would be open micing in New York. So I was annoyed at that. And then Bumbershoot happened the next year. So why would I do the competition yeah. at that point? And I'm not a competition guy anyway. Like, 
I'm not, I, so how did you get down to Melrose? You got you, your friends drove you to San Francisco. What did you do for the Melrose? I don't remember if I bought a ticket or if if the festival did. I think I did. Went down there. Uh, Ty Barnett was hosting. Okay. Ty, I knew from Seattle, so I knew that was a good sign. I wasn't going to be as nervous if Ty was there because I've I've been on stage with Ty before. Ty brought me up. Five minute set, mm-hmm. three applause breaks in the five to se- maybe seven. Oh wow! I've never had a set like that ever again. <laughs> in, in, in five to se- never three applause breaks, huge laughs. Mm-hmm. And uh, I got off stage. Remember, John Moffat came up to me and said yeah, that the, you're the very funny, young man. Producers like, of the he, festival. Oh, the legendary John yeah. Moffat. And uh, I couldn't believe that because I recognized him. And uh, <laughs> JP was happy. And mm-hmm. I remember when I was. Ty Barnett walked on stage, you know, to get the mic from me after, mm-hmm. and he's like, you got it, man. You got it. This is so good. You got it. It's very sweet. And, uh, yeah, and I made it, which is crazy. In the week I made it, like four days later, I got asked to be on Kimmel. Um, Based on that set. Yeah. The, I think JP must have sent the mm-hmm. set to Mike August, who was booking at the time at right. Kimmel. And all of a sudden, it's like, they want me on Kimmel in five days? I, di- I never thought I'd do television. I still had a job working as an immigrant rights organizer. <laughs> Same week that happened, I get into the London School of Economics uh, for my Master's in Human Rights program, which was the original plan to begin with. I wasn't supposed to have a comedy career. I fly down to L.A., uh, stayed at the Roosevelt Hotel. Mm-hmm. Never stayed at a hotel that nice before. Um, do s- stand-up on TV. William Shatner and Joel McHale were the guests. Uh, did a set. Don't, don't think it was very good. It wasn't very good. Mm-hmm. But it was my first set, you know, mm-hmm. um, and uh, that was it. I, I, I decided that comedy was something I could do, but I still wasn't sure I should do it. So then I went and got a master's degree. And while I was in London, Comedy Central asked me to come back to do Live at Gotham. I hadn't done stand-up in six months at that point. Oh, wow. Came back, relearned my act, uh, did the set, went back to London, did finals, dissertation, did new comedy again for four months. So you didn't try to do comedy while you were in London. I did, but when you're in grad, one, when you're in grad school, you don't have mm-hmm. as much time as you think. And two, like, it's a different audience, and I don't think, I just assumed all the stuff I was doing in the U.S. would work there. And then I'm like, no, because there, and here I'm an outsider, it's clear. You know, just like, you know, I have that angle of the out, being the outsider, being a person of color, white country, but in the U.K., I'm an American. For the first time, it was like, you are clearly an American. So it just some of this stuff had required more explanation, or yeah, I also started to realize, wow, I really do. I am very American in my approach, mm-hmm. aggression, delivery, um, v- like very inside baseball in terms of racial politics and gender, but po- like things that were like particular to the American experience. I don't think I realized that. So while you were in London getting your master's. What did what did all of your comedy friends and industry people think? My manager, who I'd gotten uh, around Aspen, mm-hmm. Isaac Horn, still my manager from, uh, from Avalon. I told him I uh, I'm going to take a year to go to grad school. It's important to me. If you don't want to stick around, I get it because you know what the hell? Like you got this new client and he wants to go to grad school and not mm-hmm. do comedy and. He's stuck. He's like, I'll wait for you when you whenever you get back, and uh, yeah, and I think everybody else. I mean, it didn't hurt me, which was surprising. And I got another TV spot again when I wasn't trying. I got spoiled early. 
when I got to New York and decided to do it for real, mm-hmm. I just assumed like I was going to skyrocket. Because I was 24 and I had two TV credits and a master's degree, and I wasn't even trying. And I kept thinking, what if I tried? Mm-hmm. Oh, man. I just assumed that things would happen so fucking quick. What and was the reality? It, it didn't. Like, I got to New York. Nobody was giving me spots because it's a new scene. They don't care if you have two TV credits. A lot of people have two TV credits. I was working a, <laughs> I was working a tea lounge, back room of a tea lounge in Chinatown every week with, uh, with poets and, and acoustic musicians. So I could get stage time. I refused mm-hmm. to pay and I refused to do bringers. Okay. And then slowly I worked my way up. And there was one week, I remember. There was one week. It was April 2000 and... 10. I did um, Whiplash, Eugene Merman's show, Tearing mm-hmm. the Veil of Maya, and uh, that old, the Sakapunta show that Dan Allen and Ray DeVito oh, right, used right. to do at Bowery Poetry Club. Killed all three of those sets, and I never had trouble getting a set again. Anywhere. And it was just kind of nuts. Like, you have two TV credits, it means shit. So, it, you know, woke me up. I wasn't getting paid work anywhere. You know, I didn't, I just assumed once I was on TV, like, people would just give me paid work. I thought being on TV made you famous still. This is before I realized it's a one-time payment, and occasionally you get residuals for like 10 bucks. I didn't know that it, it like I didn't, I just assumed everything was lined up now. So did you have to put that master's degree to work? No. I lived at home in Queens, deep in Queens with my parents. Okay. And it, t- t- your t- immigrant parents. My immigrant parents who incredibly supportive because i just kept thinking they were going to tell me to stop because mm-hmm. i would take the f train from jamaica 179th in jamaica and it would take an hour and a half to an hour 40 to get to brooklyn or lower east side because with buses and i think probably like three months in i'm like i don't want to do this i don't, I don't see the point of this like this is stupid and everyone's giving me five minutes and nobody laughs and the comics that they, they just stare at me and I, I don't get the good shows and my mom is just like you just started. Nothing's happened yet. Like you had to put the work in, which is crazy to hear that from her. Considering, put the work in to be a professional stand-up comedian, son. This is why we came here. <laughs> this is exactly why we came here. Did they have a plan for you and your brother? I, I mean, because pro- your brother's also a performing artist. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he was a hype man. He was the hype man in the rap group Das Racist. Um, he was Dapwell. Um, you know, I I think whatever plan they had was shattered pretty quick. Mm-hmm. We're both black sheep. I mean, it's very strange. We're good kids, but like, we've always been creatively inclined and had our own path. Um, did did yeah. being the son of immigrants was that what propelled you into doing immigra- immigration rights organizing? It was it partly. It was nine eleven mainly. Like okay. after nine eleven happened, I I don't know. Nothing made sense anymore. I mean, I was sheltered in Queens. I was sheltered by diversity. I was sheltered by like you know. I didn't, I was, you're comfortable. When you're a person of color and you're from Queens, you just, you don't feel like a weirdo. Mm-hmm. Only time you know you're a minority is when you watch television. You're like, oh, there's none of us here. Something's weird. So this isn't like the rest of the country, I guess. Um, and then all of a sudden, like, I'm in Maine when 9-11 happens because I'm in college there, Bowdoin College. And in addition to the, just the weirdness of being stared at a bit longer, you know, there were hate crimes around the country and even in Queens and people were getting deported and detained and fired from their jobs and, we were going to war, and all of a sudden it was like, what the fuck? This is America? I didn't know that. And the immigration stuff, you know, between the detentions and deportations and the hate violence, I'm like, I got to do something. And so I started thinking about that work, interned at the local DA's office. Like, I was all about that. And my comedy started to get more political. Like, initially it was just um, 
Mom sounds like this. Dad sounds like this. You know, it wasn't. How early was were you bit by the comedy bug? Seventeen. I was bit way before, but like I, I uh, started doing stand up in high school at seventeen. I just did it high school comedy night that I started. And I figured that would be it. Mark, I saw Margaret. Wait, Cho- you started a comedy night at your yeah, high school called Comedy Night, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it's all I got. A lot of the sketches, like we did sketches, which are all like old SNL sketches ripped mm-hmm. off, and there's other comics who had stuff, but it was all like. Looking at it now, there's this one kid who who just did like Drew Carey's, well, Drew Carey's routines about <laughs> the Pope Mobile and it was how just, great Cleveland was. It was just everybody was just like ripping stuff off, and I went on stage and I had some original shit that was hacky but well written mm-hmm. and original, and some jokes that were probably Margaret Show slash Chris Rock jokes with like the word Indian in them, like they weren't. That original. Oh, and we also read Jeff Ross poems. Well, we gave Jeff Ross credit. Okay. Remember the old poems? Yeah, he still does some poems. Does he? Becky, like Becky, I said, was that Becky? I said, you mean uh, you mean the world to me? Becky, I said, will you marry me? Chuck, uh, Chuck, I said, uh, uh, Jeff, uh, she said, my name is Linda. <laughs> like just great shit, like something like that. Yeah. They were always so, so good. Um, went to college, and once I realized I was like a person of color in Maine, I wanted to define myself. So I started doing stand-up there and, um, you know, did, did open mics and continued to that. But then you transferred uh, Wesleyan. For, for my junior year, I went to Wesleyan University, which is much more of a performing arts right. school. Well, that's where yeah. uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda that's right. and he was, Freestyle Love Supreme started. It, yes, there were a few years previous. And my brother's band, Das Racist, started there as okay. well. And MGMT and a bunch of other... Yeah, it's, did it's you a, interact it, with any of them? No. Well, my brother... Uh, I met Vic from Das Races once. The other ones, no, because that was mm-hmm. a different era. Okay. Um, they were older? Or they younger? were older, yeah. Okay. And I think they had graduated by the time I got there. I only spent a jun- my junior year there. Oh, okay. And then I went back to Maine. Um, and then I know. Uh, Middletown. I, was, I mean, it was, it's uh, Connecticut. <laughs> I like the college, but it was, it was Connecticut. It's, no, I grew up in Connecticut. I get yeah, it. you know, it's a filler state, Sean. It. It's I a filler it. state. It gets you to Massachusetts. <laughs> but, but, um,. I, uh, yeah, and then I went to Seattle to be an immigrant rights organizer. How did you pick Seattle? Um, well, it was, I had a year of unemployment at, with my parents doing internships and stuff mm-hmm. and couldn't find a job. And then my friend Sam, my college roommate, best friend, he's from Seattle and he found this, uh, AmeriCorps position that was open that he thought oh, it nice. was perfect for. It mm-hmm. was, uh, it was a, um, jo- a job like at this, uh, immigrant rights organization and, uh, the, you know, I felt like I was qualified for it. They gave me a shot, and I moved out there. Best decision I ever made. Changed my life. I wouldn't be doing comedy if I didn't go to that city. How how long after you moved to Seattle did you start seeking out the comedy scene? October, right after I finished the LSATs. Okay. <laughs> did the LSAT appease the folks? Mm-hmm. Went right to uh, went right to open mics. How did you find your first one? It was good. I didn't know. But what... how did you how did you actually physically find it? Oh, the internet. Okay. Like I knew there were two clubs. There was a. Uh, you remember Peter Gray? Yeah, yeah. I love Peter Gray. Peter had a website called SeattleComedy.net. Okay. And it, it just listed everything. And the biggest when I moved to Seattle, the thing I wanted most, like more than anything in the world, was to be listed on the Seattle Comedy website. <laughs> I didn't know it was really easy. You just had to meet Peter. Mm-hmm. But I didn't know that. <laughs> I was just like, I can't wait to be on that site. I'm legit <laughs> if I'm on SeattleComedy.net. Um, I went to the underground and, uh, Carl was there. Carl Warmanhoven. First host was James Hennigan. Hennigan, yes. And, um, 
incredible. There was Tracy Tufts. There was a bunch oh, of great man. comics. There it was. It was yeah, st- Tracy's in L.A. now. It was yeah yeah. I mean it was still like it was Gabandi Peters. There was a good bunch of people there, and uh, I didn't know how comedy clubs worked really, so I didn't know what the light meant. Because <laughs> I never experienced that before, mm. and then all of a sudden the music started playing in the middle of my set, like something happened. <laughs> then somebody had to explain it to me while I was. I think Carl explained it when I was on stage <laughs> in front of an audience. It's like that's music is your cue to leave. I had no idea, and then the lights blinking. I didn't know about Did any. You turn of the lights things. off on you? Uh, no, no. Oh, yeah, he he uh, dimmed them. He <laughs> dimmed them and played music. I didn't understand any of this stuff. I didn't know any of these cues. Um, but. Carl told me to come back and like two or three open mics and he told me to come on the weekends for more time. I didn't know these were things you could do. And he got me on stage all the time. I used to go as many weekends as I could to get guest sets. And I was trying, I was trying to be the first one. And Carl always hooked me up and he always said, you're good. You need to, you need to keep going up. And I was featuring within six months of being oh, wow. in Seattle, which I didn't know that was a big thing. Yeah. yeah I, I knew I wanted to get it. And I, that was a, a goal after things started happening. Like, you know, like two years featuring, and that happened in six months. And then, um, do you remember the first headliner you featured for? Jan Barrett. Okay. It's Jan Local. Barrett. Local yeah. headliner. Yeah. She said it was her last, um, her last tour ever. Mm. She's been on many tours since then. <laughs> but, uh, I think, I think I competed in the competition with her. With Jan Barrett? Like a 98. God. She was very nice to me. Very different styles. Mm-hmm. It was also interesting because I understood what road comedy meant. I didn't know what it meant before that. Because in New York, I grew up in New York. I was what, like, the comics I saw growing up weren't mm-hmm. like the comics who were coming through my town. I was at the comedy cellar on a Tuesday for two sodas and a coupon. Mm-hmm. They'll let me see, like, Todd Barry, Mark Marin, Colin Quinn, Greg Giraldo, uh, uh, Adam Ferreira, like it was loaded, man. Like I'm seeing everybody: Louis C.K., Bobby Kelly, Keith Robinson, like all the tough, basically tough crowd. Right. I was watching Tough Crowd live, <laughs> and you know that's I saw pros working stuff out. I, I saw pros a lot, so the idea of like, oh, this person has an act that's twenty or thirty years old, and they can still get work because um, the person who books it doesn't know any better, right. doesn't know who's coming out. Well, and also it was pre-YouTube. It's pre-YouTube, so it was hard to break through. It was, but, it was, but, it, but it was also easier to maintain an act for years. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, though, because that, it wasn't out there for everybody to it watch It was online. strange, though, because you knew when a, like, why is that Tom Selleck reference being made? <laughs> like, why is that happening? Cocaine in the 80s, I mean, that's real. I mean... Mm. Okay. There's a few comics that I, you know, I loved and like Lamont Ferguson was, mm, yeah. Lamont's a pro. Lamont yeah. was the first comic I saw and I thought to myself, that's how you do it. Like that is a professional comedian. I learned, I used to go to as many of his gigs as possible just to learn. Clinton Jackson, great comic, great. His crowd work was so, like he could, he knew how to diffuse a crowd by just talking to him politely and, including them in a subtle way, but then moving them away. Mm-hmm. Like, there's so many comics that, like, Don Friesen, just how he... Old, Don old Friesen old. hustled. I just remember yeah. he had these cards on all the tables where you can write your email, mm-hmm. and I, like, just noticed all these little little things. This is how you keep a mailing list. This is how you close a show. This is how you set up and selling merch or tip the wait staff. Like, this is how you acknowledge that. This is how you... You know, you try to hold for the check drop. Like, this is all stuff I learned watching those comics. When was the first time you did the road yourself? 
I featured in Tacoma. And, but I mean, uh, like the actual road. Bellingham. Bellingham doesn't okay. count. Bellingham. I did Bellingham. That was with Jim Barrett. Was that in the Elephant and Castle or somewhere else? No, it was. Um, what was it? The no, what was the name of that was... pub? It was a pub. That's the Elephant and Castle. Where... It wasn't the Elephant and Castle. It was called um... in the mall. No. Okay. No, no. I feel like... that's where they used to book it. It was a it was a stage that was too tall for an audience that wasn't interested. <laughs> is that is that vague? Is it too? Vague? I only played the mall. I did that five or six times. I'm like, I died every time. <laughs> died, and I'm like, I'm. I didn't know you could say no to going to Bellingham. I just said I thought you just had to say yes to everything. And at a certain point, I'm like, I don't want to go to Bellingham. And John was like, Oh, John Fox, who mm-hmm. you know, books is like, All right. I'm like, Oh, why the fuck have I been going? Have I been going to Bellingham for two years? Bellingham's beautiful. It's near Vancouver, but I don't. I don't need to go to Bellingham, Washington. So I take it you never did a triple run. Oh no. Oh, absolutely not. I'd heard about triple runs from everybody else, right. and I'm like, why on earth would I do that? <laughs> that sounds awful. What driving hundreds of miles? No, from, I well, from one nighter to one nighter is not appealing to and you. And losing money on the deal <laughs> to play for crowds who might not be interested. Um, I just I've met enough comics who described the road to me, like Brad Brake. I remember describing the road to me, and just he, me. He came. He was from Vancouver, wasn't I he? I think, but he used to come to yeah. Seattle a lot. Yeah, yeah. I just remember seeing these comics, and there were fun stories, but some were just really like, "This is not for me." Um, I remember. When I got the HBO Comedy Festival and I finally decided to tell the other comics because mm-hmm. I held it for a while, just as, you know, just embarrassed. It was weird to be embarrassed that you got a thing. Embarrassed about success. Yeah, because that's, I mean, maybe it's a Seattle thing. Seattle's very Scandinavian in a way. Like, <laughs> you don't, you don't brag, you don't, like, you just do your thing and acknowledge, yeah, it was a good job. And you sure don't. You betcha. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Soft. And uh, I didn't want to be that guy. Like, we were building a scene together. I believed in the idea of a local scene, so why was I doing this, and why did I get chosen? There were other comics that were funnier, and I, I, you know, I had all those doubts, and everybody was fucking great. They were so excited for me. When I was on Kimmel, they all, uh, went to, um, what is that wonderful pub in C- Capitol Hill that August Wilson used to, use the Canterbury. Okay. They, they went, all went to the Canterbury and watched me as a scene, and my friend Kevin Richards was supposed to film it, but he was too nervous, and he forgot to put the camera on. Like, <laughs> Everybody, it was the biggest thing that our little scene, the one that we had built over like four or five years and that had gotten to a certain place, one of us made it. It was a huge deal. Like, it was a really, really great scene. I didn't want to tell anybody. And I remember telling, finally, and Andy Peters, who, Andy's incredibly funny comic and so animated. He was always, not my favorite, one of my favorite comics to watch. I thought he'd be pissed because he was always doing triple runs and working the road. And like, there's this kid who's like, he works as an immigrant rights organizer. He just shows in Seattle. <laughs> he thinks Tacoma is the road 30 minutes away. Mm-hmm. Um, but Andy just was like, ah, all these years wasting, like all these years wasting time doing triple runs. This guy <laughs> just stays in Seattle, gets the thing. It, it's really funny and sweet. It was a good scene. And I, and I, that's why I tell comics whenever they want to move to New York not to. Like, not, not until you have the confidence to know you can do it, because New York will beat it out of you and make you think you don't. Mm-hmm. And not until you tape like sevens, fifteens, thirty minutes. Not only do you have the set, but you have it recorded to prove it. Um, not until you know how to to bomb in a road room, to kill in a road room. Not until you know how to 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 feature at a club, because chances are you're not going to feature again in New York for a long time. But you might need to do that to be on the road to survive, like when you're trying to do comedy in New York. Like, 
all these things. And I think comics leave way too early with a lot of these skills. And, and Seattle gave me everything. It was, it was like the ma- a master's degree in, in doing stand-up comedy in two years. What was the moment when you realized that you needed to put your master's degree and your, your human rights experience into your stand-up? You know, I mean, the master's degree and the human rights experience didn't really factor in. It was never like, you know, it was never like I have, like, it was hard to fit that stuff in. But it was funny. It, it was natural. You know, like, stand-up is this incredible art form where, like, material can change very quickly based on what's happening that day or what you just experienced. Like, the the time gap is very minimal. And... uh so I was changing as a person, so it, n- it never was a matter of let me include this political stuff in. It's like, what do comics do? They talk about what they want to talk about. Mm-hmm. That's what I wanted to talk about. Nothing felt more interesting. Nothing made me more alive. My ears perk up. I mean, it's always weird to be called a political comic or whatever else or social justice comic or an activist or whatever name, whatever group wants to brand me mm-hmm. as because this shit's all observational to me. Like, somebody can see some, like, I don't know, like if... uh if you, if you saw a football game and there's one comic that would look at the person's helmet and make fun of how it's shaped and the symbol of it and the mascot and all that, and I look at the same football game and I think about concussions, mm-hmm, like, like do these folks have health care after, right. how strong is the union, and it's my first thought. It's not like I have to put a magic political lens on. That's my first observation. I'm wired that way at this point. Right. And so it wasn't like let me do this stuff it was more like, this is the only stuff I wanted to talk about. It took me a while to include the rest of my personality. In some ways, I had to go back to where I was when I started, you know, when I was 17, like writing about stuff that wasn't just serious stuff. I, I had to find angles and experiences that were just fun experiences. Maybe, maybe the real question then is, how do you find your audience for that? Because mm. when people talk about hack comedians or or just talking about the base level observations, yeah, that's really about trying to make sure you appeal to the widest audience possible. Yeah, that's why people go hack. They they want the approval. It's funny because if you're smarter, there's well, a, there might be a worry that you're not going to get everybody on board. Well, part of it is like I didn't think this was a real job. So what did I have to lose? <laughs> Nothing was going to happen. I wasn't trying for anything. I was in Seattle doing comedy about colonialism, Sean. Like that that's not a Well, I Seattle on they read. Oh, Seattle was great, but I also knew even from Tacoma, I'm like mm-hmm. if this is the 40 minutes away and it's a different place this dramatically then yeah, this is uh I'm I'm going to do a few big cities and that's it. Like I didn't think it was a a, a legitimate thing, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, the thing I did that was smart was early on when I started to realize I was building a following where I would feature and more people would be in the club to see me feature than watch the headliner. I knew that, like, there's something going on in the city. So I started just putting out pieces of paper and asked people to sign my mailing list. I didn't have it, really, but I just started to compile one. Mm. All of a sudden, the shows got bigger and bigger and bigger and spread to other cities. And the Internet helped, obviously, having clips up and people passing it from Seattle to other cities, me getting there. And, you know, it, it was... It was a mix of keeping a mailing list, which is such a basic thing that's really important still. It's amazing. Direct mailing is still, like, on the Internet, it's still really important. And that was something you said you learned from Don. That was, that, I, I Back don't, in Seattle. I th- it's or, not like it was the first time I saw it, but it taught me how important it is to be consistent and hustle. Mm-hmm. Like, 
he wasn't because you know comics are like oh you you know keeping a man what do you you know what what are you trying to do better your career and have consistent pay and have some degree of power in your choice you know comics are stupid about shit i was just having i was just having an email discussion with one of the bookers for just for laughs because um as we record this today, they just announced the new slate of new faces. Yeah, a lot of good people. A lot of good people, but I was having problems finding web presences for a couple of them. And I told this book, I said, don't they know that they're supposed to have one? Like, yeah, what is this, 10 years ago, 15 years ago? <laughs> don't they want to further their Well, careers? that's exciting for the people who pick them because it's an actual nobody's seen them before as opposed right. to new faces. Half of them have been on television. The half of, the other half has development deals. Right. Like, it's, you know, it's more exciting when you have no idea what you're looking at, you know, who talk, you're watching. Talk about furthering your career. How big was, was doing Totally Biased for your oh, stand-up? Oh, it was, it was big. In term, it was a base builder. Mm-hmm. It was some national exposure. Kamau was very generous with um, all his writers because he gave us all time on, on TV. Yeah, he gave you he like gave our you own sections. Yeah. Essentially stand-up. Which he didn't need to. I mean, if I was him, nobody else is on that show. Mm-hmm. Like I'm, well, I've told Kamal this. If if for some reason I had to take over that show, I fire half the people, and uh, nobody else gets to get stage. I'm like we're different. We're different beings. <laughs> and I think a lot of other comics might be in the same way. Like I'm not giving you all a section. Mm-hmm. You're writers. You write for me. And Kamal gave all, all of us a shot, and I'm I'm still really grateful. Like that changed my life. I got to work with Chris Rock. I got to do something distinct that I was proud of. That was a master. If CL was a master's class in stand-up comedy, Totally Bias was a master's class in making television. I like learned how to produce my own like field pieces, mm-hmm. like how the editing process worked, how to write for somebody else, not in your voice, not to think every joke is precious, to throw things away and move on to the next assignment, to write on deadline, to like suppress my own ego. These are things that comics are not good at, and when you're a writer, all those things come into play. It was humbling and important, and like. I really saw how a show worked, things I wanted if I ever got the opportunity, things I didn't want. And I had confidence. If I didn't do that show, I wouldn't be like, you know, trying to make a television show. I wouldn't be trying to make a movie, like none of this stuff. I needed the confidence to know that like I I was good enough to, to hold my own in that setting and that I could work for somebody like Chris Rock and not be afraid. Uh, I, I recently re-listened to your uh, interview with Fresh Air. Mm. Which was from twenty, which was a couple of years ago. Yeah, it was when the first album came out. So it was twenty fourteen. Yeah. yeah, and uh, and in that interview, you told Terry Gross, talking about furthering your own career, that you were still kind of waiting for more varied roles to play. Yeah, um, I mean, I wonder. Yeah. I wonder in in the interim two years since then, watching what Aziz Ansari was able to do with Master of None, has that like given you more confidence to do? Do your own thing, or are you still kind of... It, it You know, it's funny. I, at that point, I was still holding on to maybe there was television work for me to subsidize stand-up. I'm a stand-up. Mm-hmm. Everything I do is trying to figure out how to get more people in the seats. That's what a real stand-up is. Every project is just, well, let's draw more people to the shows. Um, if anything, I probably realized that I'm not an actor. If I had to, I could. Mm-hmm. But I'm not passionate about it. So it's never been something where the stand-up then leads to a development deal. I was always I was struggling. Season. 
I was struggling to figure out what stand-up would lead to. Mm-hmm. I couldn't think of anything greater than recording albums. Because that's what I loved. I loved watching specials and especially albums, like just audio. I love the audio part more than the visual, to be honest with you. Is that why you've done two albums but no big Th- That's part of special? it. That's a, a part of it. First one, definitely. Mm-hmm. And the second one, like the stuff felt a little more topical. I didn't want, you know, what's the point of doing a special? So <laughs> let's, let's just get it out. Um, but That's I love not what all the other comedians say. Right, whatever. <laughs> I mean, I, a special is a special. If Netflix yeah. has the money, let's do it. No, I want to pace myself and I, and I'm a, also I want it, I mean, I feel now more capable of a special than ever before. I'm sure I could have done it bef- like years ago, but I mm-hmm. remember watching my Comedy Central Presents special a few years ago and my memory of that special was that I was amazing. I got a standing ovation at the end of it. I remember mm-hmm. people coming up to me saying how amazing I was. And I watch that special now, and I'm like, "This was this is fucking." I was the delivery was tight. I was like not moving at all. Mm-hmm. Like everything was so rehearsed. Like I don't I don't want to be that comic. And so I and, and that was a, a recorded half hour. Mm-hmm. So I mean, if I had recorded a special a few years after that, why would I would hate it? And I feel with, with that, that's a natural thought for any comedian to have. Looking back at their past work, though, certainly. But at least if no, they're if they're progressing, is you always yeah, look but, back and go, Ugh. well, absolutely. But I, I would rather do that about something that's significantly better. Mm-hmm. You know, like I mean, I, I I feel like the two albums I've I've learned a lot. Audio. Mark Marin told me this when I was nervous about making my first record. Mark's like, it's audio, so you're okay. Audio is easy to manipulate. If you drop the ball, you d- you can do another take at another show. Like if you if you miss something, they can fix it. If you right. stutter, they can fix it for a cleaner recording. I'm not one who com- like I know I know there's there's the the court that's like I want an accurate document of the thing, and then there's uh, meaning I want it to feel like a night. Sure, you know, it's a night unedited. This is a night, and there's people like me I think who are more about I don't care about an accurate. That's not it's not a historic event. I want something that best encapsulates the work I've been doing during those years. And best conveys that to people. Okay. So that's, you know, that's what, you know, audio was. And it took the pressure off. And again, like, the Killing Him Softly special Dave Chappelle did, I didn't see that special for years. I didn't know it was a TV special because somebody burnt the audio for me and I thought it was an album. Oh, wow. Okay. And when I watched the special, I remember being disappointed because it wasn't nearly as good as what I imagined from, from what he was saying. His, he was so strong as a comic and as a writer. That even facial expressions and things like that you couldn't see because he was so funny in the way he set it up. You could you were still laughing because you could imagine what he might be doing, and so audio always fascinated me. You know, like how is it that like stand up already is incredible, right? No production values, person, microphone, talking to strangers. Like today, in this day and age, that actually still <laughs> captivates people. Human being in microphone, nothing else. That's nuts. And then audio is the, is it, right? Like, it's nuts. Like, who does that anymore? Plays have production values. Movies have production values. Internet videos, like, they have such incredible production values. People need to see sex and they need to see violence and they need to see movement and quick. You, attention spans are a minute and a half, two minutes at the most for videos. An hour of one person talking about stuff they were thinking about. That's People go to that still, mm-hmm. and then the audio is like, you don't even have a visual. You just hear voices in your head, and you imagine it. Like, <laughs> that whole, it's nuts to me. And so the audio part really amazed me. And also, I didn't, I like the idea that if people don't know what you look like, mm-hmm. necessarily, 
the work stands for itself too. So I both those things, like all those things rather, made me really want to do audio. I mean, the next thing will be a special. Okay. Like I, I you know, I'm thinking about one more little funny release of a random. I I do these things mostly in Seattle, new material nights where I'll book a theater um, for uh, for four nights or four shows, and I'll do an hour of new material in front of like 40 people, and uh, the first show will be garbage because I have no jokes. I'm like riffing and I'm, you know, working on some bullet points. By the end, there's like half of it's really constructed, and the other half, you know, you're still playing with. And uh, they're the nights where I'm the loosest, the most comfortable, because there's an excitement in material. And it doesn't matter if it fails. It's supposed mm-hmm. to. Scratch night. And then... Um, Do you record all that? Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, on my phone. So I recorded one in San Francisco. I only did one in San Francisco and I recorded it. And it's funny because I listened to that audio, which isn't fantastic, but I listened to that and that is one of the best shows I've ever done. It feels like it. The energy is there. Improvising. Impro- like, that's how you know when a night's going well, when you're improvising a ton of it. You're making shit up, and you're getting laughs off the written stuff, and you're getting even stronger laughs off the improvised stuff. Well, that's getting back to the source yeah. of when you were young and you were just naturally funny. And yes. you realized, oh, I wonder if I could do this consistently. Right. And all of a sudden, uh, all the people in the audience are friends you haven't met yet. Like, you're that comfortable, just yeah. like you were in high school. And, like, goofing around with your friends. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it, it's funny. Those Those nights to me are, like really important I, i've had a mental block for years about working on new stuff in new york it's really strange hmm. i when i moved here what i would do uh when i was just performing in that you know back room in that tea lounge in chinatown i would take um weeks in seattle or san francisco and just work on new material there and, and remember i was funny and feel confident again just so i could be crushed in new york and i'd go <laughs> back again and just um but during those trips i got you know real close to kamau Nato Green introduced us for a tour in 2008 and, and a bunch of other comics that really, really were supportive and shaped me. And the friendship with Kamau is the most important comedy friendship other than my writing partner, uh, Ahamaluo in Seattle. How'd you decide to do the, this new podcast with Kamau? Kamau uh, said, you want to do podcasts? They'll give us money. I'm like, oh, they're going to give us money to hang out when we should be hanging out more anyway? Yeah. Oh, you can get money for doing this? I, it was shocking. <laughs> Don't tell I don't think they know people do this stuff for free. They don't know, so just let's go. I mean, it's... I'd like uh, to thank my sponsors. <laughs> for, First Look Media is, has really invested a lot of time, energy, money into this this venture. It's the first podcast they ever did. First Look um, co-financed uh, Spotlight, mm-hmm. like incredible company, and this is their first podcast, and they believe in what we're doing, and the the like... We're ranked in the top 30 consistently after a month. We peaked at 50. We were, we're number two in the news and politics section after serial. Like, none of this shit makes sense. What are you What are you two hoping to do with the podcast? I, we were just going to do it for the election and goof around. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't think we had any long-term plans, but all of a sudden it's like, this, this is a thing. I didn't know this was a thing. Kamal gets annoyed every time I say that. Like, what do you think was going to happen? I'm like, I don't know. Like, I thought we'd make this podcast. It'd be fun and... You know, our, our fans know where we are, and instead it's become this thing where we've gained so many new people. Well, he's been on CNN. Well, he has his own show, and uh, second one, yeah. And you, uh, what what was it like the first time you saw one of your quotes on a activist <laughs> sign? Oh, man. Um, 
I really wanted a Grammy award for the first. Uh, it was delusion, but the, the waiting, waiting for twenty fourteen. Yeah, for waiting for twenty forty two. I just wanted a nomination. I didn't want an award. Mm-hmm. I just I felt it was a good record, and it came out in Kill Rockstars. And Kill Rockstars is like this. Apparently, it was the first album out of their long history of punk and indie records mm-hmm. that they put up for a Grammy, which is nuts. And we were all psyched about it, and I didn't get it. I was really upset. The day I found out I didn't get it was the day I saw that quote on a poster. And it was, uh, I forget the quote, even though I wrote it, like, um, (laughs) telling me I'm obsessed with racism in America is like telling me I'm obsessed with swimming when I'm drowning. It's just, it's a light, it's just a little setup for a longer joke on my album. Just a little metaphor to Mm -hmm. set up the thing. And people ran with the quote. And at the Eric Garner protests, I saw a picture of a young woman holding it on a placard. And then I was getting... uh, pictures from all over the country at different protests wherever there was a cop shooting or a uh, cop shooting uh, you know a, a cop killing somebody or um whenever there was any kind of protest it seemed like in miami in boston in seattle in portland san francisco in austin like chicago my quotes were, were part of the rally you don't do this for that <laughs> i do this for laughs and i want to make people laugh um I don't, I don't do this, you know, I think people assume, you know, you, do you think you can create social change with comedy? Mm-hmm. That fucking question. Like, no. I do, I tell, I want, I don't think people, cause usually it's political types that ask me and it's hard to explain to them. I really like making people laugh and this is what I want to talk about and there's no agenda. I just like making people laugh. And I like doing it on my terms and on the things I find funny with my unique sense of humor. Right. That's so, so whether it's that quote or talking about Black Lives Matter versus All Lives Matter right. on the new album. Or or if it's like making a six-minute Weezer joke on the first record or constantly referencing Back to the Future, even though fewer and fewer people know what I'm talking about anymore. Like, I'm going to do the stuff I'm going to do, and it's going to be that mix of pop culture and shit I care about. And, you know, I... um. I don't know. I feel like, you know what kills me, Sean? I think you'd appreciate this. Two things. Whenever I read a review, it's always how smart I am. Just nobody fucking says funny. And that's the only thing I really want to see. At least they don't call you nice. Right. <laughs> he's a nice guy. Oh, he's such a nice comic. How is that guy? He's nice. So nice. And everybody knows what that code is. I'll have to ask Josh Condelman about That's that. That's different. I mean, Josh, we're talking about that. I told Josh, you're the only person. You and Funches are the only people that people say are nice and it's not an insult. Right. You're both hysterically right, funny. Right, because they, they both are. They're, but they're, they're both also nice. The nicest people. Nice. Oh, yeah. I'm fairly nice. But like, as you heard previously, like, I'd fire everybody on Totally Biased if I had right. the power. I was. I would be, be a, a fucking maniac. Selfish bastard, huh? I would be so selfish. I wouldn't fire everybody. But when people call you smart, that... I mean, it drives me nuts. It's like, I get it, Mm -hmm. but it's like, if if that was my goal, I would have gotten a PhD. I would be doing something. I want to make you laugh. And the records prove I make people laugh, so let's focus on that. And then the the other thing is when people talk about my work, and I get it, they always talk about the the points of view, Mm -hmm. which I know it's like sharp. Like, I know what I do and why I do it and all that, but about race and like you talk about all these difficult things and whatever i get it like for me it's just stuff i want to talk about nobody ever talks about the fucking structure of the jokes how well written they are and what Mm -hmm. those i mean the influences are like 
like Leo Allen once said, I was the perfect mix of Paul Mooney and Stuart Lee. And that to me is exactly what I want. I want to be that perfect mix of Paul Mooney and Stuart Lee, hmm. who are such different comedians, right. both in terms of content and structurally and just very different com- comedians. And there's a lot of heavy stuff and heavy issues on this, on both records. But fuck the callbacks. Some of these callbacks are really hard. They're, they're pretty good callbacks. I mean, there's a joke on the first record that I, I intentionally bomb so I could bring up the bombing at the end of the record. Like, that's a fucking hard thing to do. <laughs> there's jokes that I know fail <laughs> and I want them to fail so I can give an explanation of what the joke means, which you're not supposed to do. Cause in the explanation, I got jokes. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the punchline's in the middle. Like, nobody ever talks about, like, how I write. That's and, a shit and, I'm proud and very of, few comedians ever are uh, vociferously defending their intent to fail. It's so, I mean, it's such, <laughs> It's like, no, I have an agenda. It would be, well, it was kind of like, look, I'm going to bomb enough times anyway with what I talk about. At least let me use the bomb for something, you know? Like, it, it, it Stuart Lee... Like watching him perform, it proves that anything is possible in stand-up. It, like there are no rules, and it's funny because he also is highly structured while also breaking all these, you know, no, like things that you assume are normal in stand-up and expected. And I mean, he had a special that maybe had six jokes in it. <laughs> Everything else is just these cool stories and structural things. Like, so that really, you know, he, you know, nobody ever thinks, "Hey, that's cool how you did that." I mean, uh, Kamau always says that when comedy is done well, it feels like ma- a magic trick. Nobody sees it coming. Nobody knows how to do it. Other people try and they're slightly off and they they word it wrong and it doesn't work. Right. Like, you know, if I'm doing a fucking magic trick, like why? Like, hey, I made the Statue of Liberty disappear. Man, that's so cool that you did something about the Statue of Liberty and freedom and justice. No, I made it disappear. <laughs> What? Why are you? It's just so cool that you brought something that's so important for immigrants, and I made it disappear. Do, nobody, nobody noticed what I did. It's very annoying. So you're, so you're making a documentary about Apu from mm-hmm. The Simpsons. Mm-hmm. Is is that, is that going to be a, a, a gear changer or a switch? Like or, uh, meaning, or what's your intent with that? It's it's a it's a topic that I've found myself talking to friends about for years, both like in the industry and now mm-hmm. like South Asian friends and stuff. And uh, I, whenever I to- tell people, th- you know, especially non like South Asians in particular, mm-hmm. that um, I'm doing a documentary about Apu, everyone's eyes kind of open up, like, holy shit. And yeah, like, you know, just the fact that he exists today and that voice is ridiculous and it's 2016 and how did it, la- like, it never, there's so many people who love The Simpsons and I love it too. I'm, I was obsessed with it as a kid, but no, a lot of people didn't even notice how fucked up that character is. And look, he's also really smart and clever and like, has to explain things to Homer and all that, but like, still has a fucking goofy voice done by a white dude. Like, that's, it's weird. He could say whatever he wants. It's sometimes the writing isn't getting the laugh. It's the, the goofy voice mm. um and so like for me it was just like an interesting interesting thing to exist uh, to an interesting thing to examine considering like how much we're talking about like whitewashing and minority roles and comedy and, and all diversity all these big things 
and it's the Simpsons. It's like a, a, a it's like it's like the Bible, man. Like it's something you're not you don't touch. Yeah. And it's around even One of the I don't even know if it, running TV shows in history. I don't know who watches it still, but I'm glad it's there, and I'd be upset if it wasn't. Like it's it's the Simpsons. And I don't think I've ever seen someone critique The Simpsons other than it's not as funny as it used to be, which right. is a, which is a critique of anything you love, really. And this seemed like a valid critique and something I realized that a lot of people I, I've had the, I've had conversations about Apu and how annoying that voice and these accents are with with Kumail, with uh, with Aziz, with Hasan uh, Minaj, like the, not like on camera. I'm just saying, just in passing, right. like, it's something that annoys all of us and makes our life harder as comedians who are trying to make stuff or artists or whatever. Um, so, yeah, I mean, so that's, that's why I wanted to do it. I felt like it was really unique and True TV is letting me do it. I pitched it. They said, yeah, we want you to do that. And also, would you like a TV pilot? And I said, yes, that would be very nice. Thank you. <laughs> Ten years of general meetings with a rotating group of executives all over the country, right? General meetings where it's the, the next young group of uh, executives. And then the next year, each year they're just the same age and everybody else moves on. And <laughs> ten years of that, of no, like them saying, well, we can't wait to work with you. you just talk to us when you're ready. All, ten years of that. And I pitch something else to a network over the phone. They give me a TV pilot. It's wonderful, but it's like, you know, it's the industry. It's very strange. You don't know why things happen and why people have faith in you at a certain time. But, you know, somebody had faith, like, they have faith in me and they gave me two really cool projects. What do you want to do with the pilot? Figure, I'm figuring that out. I mean, I definitely want to do something that distinctly has my voice. And I think a lot about, you know, a lot of, a lot of I mean, every comic seems to do, like, stand-up and sketch and all that. Everyone tries to reinvent it. I think I'm probably one of the, those two. <laughs> I know that it just gives me... You know, a vehicle to convey a lot of things that I've never seen. To me, it's like the form is less important than the content. If you have good content, like Amy Schumer show is great, but it's, a, it's an old form. It's good content and a lot of different things. So I'm, I'm thinking about how to make that work. What, what kinds of advice or mantras have, have helped you as you're in this phase of your career? Everything isn't everything. Is something Kamau says a lot. I quote Kamau a lot. He's mm-hmm. like my, one of my best friends and a big brother and a mentor. Um, and his path to success is something I admire greatly. And he's doing it out of Berkeley. Mm-hmm. And if I could yeah, he, this- yeah, he left New York and went back to the Bay. Yeah, and then he got another TV show yeah. and a Showtime special. Man, I mean, if I could do this out of Seattle, I gladly would. Um, but yeah, everything, everything isn't everything. And I feel like I had a tough time. Like when I'd write stuff, and I'm like, well, I didn't cover this angle of it. Maybe I should try to cover this angle. Or and I left that open. This only covers this much. And, you know, Kamau would be like, everything doesn't have to be everything. You know, so, some jokes, like, yeah, they might have some holes in it or some logical flaws. Or you didn't cover a certain angle. You get to it later. A career is, is not just a single joke or a, a single album. Like, it, it changes over time. It evolves. There's a lot of things to talk about. Um, so that's something that certainly, like gives me a lot of peace it makes me feel like everything doesn't need to be perfect because it's never going to be perfect everything doesn't have to be everything so you do the best and whatever you leave behind you work on it for something else that's been great and what's uh on the flip side what's the first thing you tell a new wannabe comedian oh don't go to new york immediately 
Don't go to New York or L.A. until you're ready. Just go on stage and bomb and bomb and bomb. And there's more bombing than succeeding early on for most of us. And that's normal. And you're developing a thicker skin. And you just have to do it over and over again. I tell them to listen to comedy, like I was describing earlier. Mm-hmm. Just really understand how it works. Um, not just visually. Like, pay attention to other performers, especially early on. You learn from everybody in different ways. I mean, it's a, uh, Dwayne Kennedy, the legendary Dwayne Kennedy and I were, were talking about how, you know, it seems like almost every comic has at least one good joke. Like, comics would be the hackiest com- comics in the world. You're like, oh, every, but there's one joke. Like, nobody's ever said that joke before. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, right. you have one little masterpiece that no one else can take credit for. You did that. You know, so, I mean, it's, you learn from everybody. There's a chance to learn from everybody. So, start in a place where you're supported and can get as much stage time as possible and try to get as much quality stage time. New York gives you quantity. It gives you a chance to repeat a lot. I don't think it's always quality. If you're in a smaller scene, you could get more quality. And you're, and even if it's just comics, those comics are more likely to listen. Because they don't think you're taking their spot, <laughs> and that they're better than you are, and you know if, if they're thinking about what they're going to say, like in smaller scenes they listen, they support each other. So go to a smaller scene and really build. Like Portland's amazing right now. Portland's a small scene. And it's it's amazing. Like go to a scene like that. Boston, of course. San Francisco, Chicago, good scenes. Denver's blowing up. Like you don't with the internet. Like the local is really powerful. And uh, if, like you said, you go and you bomb a lot, if you structure your bomb just right, oh. you can you can call back to it later. There are no rules. <laughs> there are absolutely <laughs> – Reggie Watts doesn't even use words sometimes. <laughs> there are no rules here. Hmm. You could do whatever you want. It's absurd. Like, honestly, I think that also was freeing, that, like, everything didn't have to sound a certain way. And it goes like this and it's like that. It's a punchline. It doesn't need to be that way. It doesn't need to be that way. It could be whatever you want it to be. And also there are people that want you. I think the last thing I think is important that I learned early is when you have 100 people and 90 people hate you and 10 people love you. It's not that they're laughing at pity. They fucking love you. That's not a bad set because those 10 people will come back to see you and they'll bring their friends and then they'll bring their friends and so on and so forth. And that's how you build a following. You realize how hard it is to laugh and no one else is? That's, those are real laughs. They had to laugh upstream. You know what I mean? Like, they had to laugh against the current. <laughs> that's incredible. Well, Harry, I, I love you. And, I love you uh, too, Sean. And uh, this was fun. And uh, dare I say, even a little smart. It was really smart. <laughs> it was so intelligent. He's like he's like Lenny Bruce. He's like the next Lenny Bruce. You know how people are always quoting Lenny Bruce jokes and laughing. Nobody ever quotes a Lenny Bruce joke. Nobody uh, ever does. They no. quote Carlin. No, but they quote you. So that's uh, yeah, that's something. Thanks, thanks, thanks so much for doing this. This episode of the Comics Comic presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com, for more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean O. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. 
things first.